This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. No different from getting close, if that's the word, the phrase you want to use, than to any any other figure. I don't try to identify with them, but I try to understand them. When people say to me, did you like or dislike A or B, the answer is that that question never arises. I just have to understand them, and by understanding them, convey that understanding to the reader. That's really my only mission. Try not to judge the people I describe or discuss, because that's not my role, and also I don't have any right to do so. How did a shy, sometimes naive young T.S. Eliot become the most influential and resounding poetic voices of the 20th century? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. On tonight's show, biographer, poet and literary scholar Robert Crawford talks to me about the beguilingly complex T.S. Eliot, a man plagued by crippling personal anxieties, sexual frustration and a deep unhappiness. And is Charlie Chaplin the spiritual heir of Charles Dickens? Best-selling British biographer Peter Ackroyd talks to me about the relationship between time and place, the mysterious charms of London and the city's celebrated inhabitants. This is a show about people and places, brokenness and redemption, artistic energy, anxious masculinity, and a touch of genius. But first, how T.S. Eliot became more English than the English themselves. Robert Crawford is Professor of Poetry at the University of St Andrews. He is a Fellow of the British Academy and a Fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Now, Robert has written extensively on Scottish literature and its cultural heroes. His books include The Bard, Robert Burns, A Biography, The Modern Poet, Devolving English Literature and Bannock Burns, Scottish Independence and the Literary Imagination. Incidentally, Robert has also published seven books of poetry, his most recent being Testament, which was published in 2014. While Robert's latest literary venture, Young Elliot, From St Louis to the Wasteland, is an absolute must-read for any T.S. Eliot fan. In fact, anyone who likes biography, human psychology, with a twist of literary history, will adore this book. It's an exquisite read, hugely compelling and quite an eye-opener. One thing is for sure, after reading Robert's book, you realise we may never fully come to grips with the real T.S. Eliot, a man who Robert writes had perfect pitch when it came to the music of words. In Young Eliot, Robert Crawford writes, I cannot claim to be in sympathy with all of Eliot's ideas and I do not attempt to disguise anti-Semitic moments in his work or other elements of racism, sexism, deeply ingrained in his society and never fully outgrown. Eliot was no saint and should not be presented as such. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk with Robert about this fascinating man. I asked him, how close are we to understanding the real T.S. Eliot? I don't think you can ever understand another human being fully, but I hope that what I'm doing in Young Eliot is presenting a more nuanced, portrait than has ever been presented before, particularly concentrating on his American background. This is, this is a book that takes him from his birth to the age of 34 when he publishes his most famous poem, The Wasteland. It's very much the biography of an American, maybe an American who in some ways ended up becoming more English than the English, but nonetheless, someone who came from the ragtime city of St. Louis, born there in 1888, living there at the same time as Scott Joplin, then schooled, going to university in the northeastern United States at Harvard, uh, formed very much by his American background before he ever sets foot in England. He's in his 20s by the time he moves to England. Now, Robert, you say T.S. Eliot was no saint and shouldn't be presented as such. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Clearly, he um, had a very 
how should I put it? He had a series of very complex and intense relationships with women. Some were very gratifying and others not so. So how would you describe him, his temperament? Shy, um, to some extent perhaps damaged, very, very intelligent um, and highly self-conscious. He was born with a congenital double hernia. When, when he was a, a little boy, he grew up in a family where most of his siblings were sisters. He had one elder brother, and I think he was quite shy in the household. His mother, who was a, a poet, but rather a frustrated poet, um, she published some but not all of her poetry uh, in small magazines. Uh, his mother was rather protective of him. He wasn't allowed to take part in um, team contact sports when he was a boy. So I think he probably had a certain anxiety about his masculinity from uh, a fairly early age. Uh, and then when he goes to um, university and he's in the midst of, uh, as he had been at school, a lot of rather sporty young men in an all-male educational atmosphere, uh, he tries to bond with them. Uh, and one way he does it is by making up all these filthy poems that, that people who don't know a lot about T.S. Eliot would never imagine could have been authored by T.S. Eliot. Um, and they're almost like the, the flip side of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, that anxious poem, anxious masculinity. Th- these, these other poems, um, which are probably too rude for me to um, recite on the radio, are poems of a kind of over-protestation of masculinity. And he struggled with his sexuality or certainly expressing it both with men and with women. I think so. Um, people, some, some people have argued that he was gay. I, 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 I'm a bit reluctant to just label people one, one thing or another, but some, some people think he was in love with a young man to whom his first book, uh, Proofrock and Other Observations, is dedicated in 1917. I think it was simply that as a student on a year abroad, he'd gone to Paris, a young man who often found it difficult to make friends, And there in these same lodgings in Paris was a young Frenchman whose interests were astonishingly close to his own. And he'd had some literary friends before, but not really close literary friends. This guy um, was almost like a soulmate. They were very, very close. For the, for the year 1910 to 11, when Tom, as I call him, uh, when Eliot was in Paris, um, and they kept in touch a bit sporadically. If you read their letters, they're not love letters. They're letters of very close friends who enjoy teasing each other, remembering common experiences they've had. And then this guy gets killed during World War I. Uh, so this man, who's really been Eliot's closest friend and and shared a number of important literary experiences with him. It's just gone completely. It's rather a shock for someone, I think, in their mid-twenties to lose the person that might be their closest friend. And that, too, added to this sense of vulnerability and damage that I think Elliot carried with him. He was shy. He was awkward with women. He'd fallen in love with a young woman called Emily Hale before he left America for good. In 1914, uh, he declared his love to her, but she seemed not to respond. She gave him no encouragement. I I think he's quite hurt by that. Even in in old age, he writes a a personal um, recollection of this. Uh, And you can feel a pang of hurt in his wording, uh, where he says that she gave him no sign of encouragement. So he has failed in love. He moves to England, uh, and, and he meets um, some women, kinds of, kind of women that he hadn't really met in the rather repressed Bostonian circles that he moved in when he was at university. He meets this very vivacious, young, artistic English woman uh, called Vivian Haygood, uh, who excites him, and, and they marry. They're both on the rebound, Elliot from Emily Hale, Vivian from a previous relationship. And initially... This seems a good idea to them both, but it turns out to be a disaster. And Eliot's poetry gets rather darker after that. There's quite a lot of subversive, almost merriment, um, social satire in, in some of the poems of his first book. But by the time we're heading towards the wasteland, 
a poem that Eliot says was really conditioned by his relationship with Vivian, uh, we're heading into much darker territory. The title really says it all, The Wasteland. Uh, it's an emotional wasteland. It's a place of, of, of damage, of brokenness, of, of a sense of infertility uh, that, that seems to have dogged their marriage. So the frustrations in that marriage, the contempt possibly, or the bitterness in in some ways brought him to that state that he could write the wasteland because yes. there's so much vulnerability and frustration and angst it's a poem with a weird acoustic um it's a poem that that people whether they like it or not can't quite forget once they've read it uh, and sometimes it's presented almost as a kind of intellectual crossword puzzle. It's full of quotations and allusions to earlier uh, works of literature, particularly works of poetry. But I think it's a mistake to regard it just as a, a cerebral poem, a poem that sends you into the library and then never lets you out again. It's a poem of flesh and blood. It's a poem of hurt. It's a poem of desperately seeking for some notion of salvation and yet being caught in a kind of despair. And yet, you know, Robert, some people love that intellectual game. They can play with the wasteland. Yes. But the the raw emotions that come from that and all the messiness of life and that experience that he has, it's tremendous. It's powerful, isn't it? Oh, it's very powerful, yeah. I mean, you, you, you can hear it in the music. You can hear it not just in the complicated passages, but in, in some of the most haunting and, and really um, elemental passages uh, of the poem. Here is no water, but only rock, rock and no water, and the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. That obsessive repetition of those words, rock, and water um, in, in a passage that ends as, with, with the kind of acoustic hallucination, drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 but there is no water. Tremendous humanity there, though, isn't there? Yeah, uh, and, and, and a sense of really tormenting hopelessness, it has to be said. It, 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 it's, a, it's a life shadowed by darkness, and, and the poetry is, is itself often cut into rather jaggedly and, and shadowed. Now, Robert, you have a very extensive chapter on the role of Ezra Pound and their creative relationship and how Ezra was a sort of literary missionary, I think you describe him, introducing him to all sorts of people, whether it was publishers or James Joyce, lots of different interesting people. And it wasn't an easy thing to get The Wasteland published, yet it's one of the most iconic poems of the 20th century. It's hard to believe all the struggles he had in uh, in getting it published and also in how he went about choosing who was the right publisher because he really analysed this. He dissected it to the hilt, didn't he? Yes, I think his biggest struggle, to be honest, was when he arrived in London at first and he's trying to publish the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Which um, I think is absolutely an incredible poem. It's, yeah, I love it. This, this, is, this is a masterpiece that he has produced at the age of 22 uh, and yet... Um, it, it, it takes him uh, several years before anyone will publish it. Uh, it's shown to one or two people who think it's mad. You know, they, they, they just think it's insane. They can't understand it. think it's absolutely crazy. I won't publish it. Uh, Ezra Pound sees uh, its quality, hears its quality. Uh, and he's, he's, like Elliot, a young American in London. He's a talent scout for an American magazine. Uh, he persuades the editor of this, this magazine called Poetry, based in Chicago, to take the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. The, the editor probably doesn't like it tremendously because it ends up appearing towards the back of the magazine, but at least it's in print. And, and now that seems to us, I think, often the poem that more than any other really initiates mod- what we call modernism in the English-speaking world of poetry. Uh, let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. That line, like a patient etherized on a table, it's like a bomb going off in poetry. Um, you try to put that line into Keats or Wordsworth or Tennyson, it just does not fit. And that's what makes it so striking, so shocking, so new and so powerful. But it takes Elliot quite a long time before anyone will publish it. 
Now, Robert, Tom was quite the contradiction and he's very much a mystery. And from reading your biography, there's so many people around him that you've, you know, you looked at a lot of the big relationships in his life, both professional and creative. And in ways, he was elusive with everyone. I'm just wondering, Virginia Woolf, she described him as a poet in a four-piece suit. How in love was she with him? Or is that over? Is that overplaying? I don't think it? she's quite in love with him, but she's she 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 comes as the relationship develops. She comes quite close to falling in love with him, but but that's later in the relationship. I think uh, that 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 uh, for Wolf he is an enigma. Uh, she finds him very American, uh, rather hard to read, inscrutable, and yet fascinating. She disc- she she she. she meets him because she's interested in publishing some of his poetry. Uh, She's impressed by it. And she becomes his publisher. The Wasteland as a British book doesn't appear until 1923. Uh, It comes out as a book in America in 1922, but as a book in Britain in 1923. And it's published by Leonard and Virginia Woolf at the Hogarth Press. So the Woolfs are very, very important to... um, Eliot's um, society, the, the circles that he moves in, but also to his publishing history. They help, they help him get into print uh, with his greatest work. He publishes The Wasteland, first of all, in a sense, himself in his own magazine, The Criterion, in 1922. But it's the wolves that, that let it become a book uh, in, in, on this side of the Atlantic. Now, there's some intriguing side stories in your biography on the other side of Tom. One was his relationship with his young nephew and how he liked uh, whoopee cushions and joke shops. The other thing I was fascinated by was I couldn't quite picture T.S. Eliot, or as you call him, Tom, reading Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh yeah, he'd read Sherlock Holmes when he was a kid. He, he's born in 1888, so these stories coming out in the 1890s, they're, they're brand new. He grows up in quite an Anglophile household, though in a big, uh, sometimes rather slummy, industrial city on the Mississippi in Missouri, St. Louis. He identifies with, for instance, the kind of urban fogs that you get in Sherlock Holmes because St. Louis was a very smoky, foggy, industrial city. So there's a sense in which in his reading, in his imagination, he's reading Dickens, he's reading Arthur Conan Doyle. He's imagining himself in London long before he goes there. Uh, And when he goes there, he eventually ends up living around, just almost around the corner from Sherlock Holmes' fictional address in Baker Street. And I know that he loved Conrad as well, didn't he? Yes, uh, he, he likes Conrad. Originally, uh, he wanted a quotation from Conrad uh, as a little quote at, at, at the beginning of The Wasteland. Ezra Pound persuaded him out of that. That might have been a mistake. Um, the, the, the quotation from Conrad that Eliot wanted at the beginning of The Wasteland is that famous one from Heart of Darkness, which just ends, the horror, the horror. And like Conrad, Eliot writing some of his greatest poetry at a time when war and uh, imperialism are convulsing European civilization has a great sense of, of, of horror, of devastation, of waste. Now, you also describe him as beguilingly complex. And I'm just wondering, within all of that complexity, how did his relationship with his mother and certainly some of her views on life, how did that shape him? There's a, there's a moment he remembers when he's walking along Beaumont Street in St. Louis with his mother. This is when he's still a schoolboy. And she says to him that he's just written a poem which is better than anything that she has ever written herself. Um, And there might just be a little tinge of jealousy in that, as well as a proud recognition of his talent. And he simply says he knew how much her own poetry meant to her, so he didn't say anything else at all at that point. His mother's ambitious, his mother is but Robert, she was um, anti-Semitic, wasn't she? Uh, she? She was. I, th- I think there was uh, quite a vein of anti-Semitism in the family. Um, she writes a rather shocking letter where um, she talks not only about how Elliot's father, who was the director of a brick-making company in St. Louis, tried to avoid doing business with Jews, uh, but she, she says that when she meets Jews, they make her think of animals sometimes. Right? It's very shocking. People sometimes uh, are disturbed by men 
mentions of um, Jews in Eliot's own poetry. There's the tone, but the tone in his poetry is comparatively mild compared to what his mother could say. It's as if I think that's a prejudice in his own background that perhaps he never fully escapes though he did later in life deny that he was anti-Semitic. Now, one of the things I found fascinating in reading your book was T.S. Eliot's experience of Indian philosophy. For several years, he became quite obsessed with the Buddha, Buddhism, reading Pali and Sanskrit. That's something that I didn't know about him. Yeah, when he's a graduate student, you know, you, you can just imagine him going home to his um, rather commercially minded businessman father and saying, uh, Dad, I'd like, to, I'd like to spend some years studying Sanskrit now. Um, his father, um, who often thought his son rather wayward, uh, did love him and bankrolled him, bankrolled him as a graduate student and as an undergraduate. And, and he ends up studying Sanskrit. Now, many people might think that's the most useless subject possible. But for Eliot, it pays intellectual dividends. Uh, that, that, that famous uh, word at the end of the wasteland, shanti, 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 that comes straight from um, one of the Sanskrit texts that he's been reading, uh, a text that his professor has presented him with uh, as a student at university. But the difference there is, Robert, while some people will use that, they don't necessarily understand it. And he clearly did. He understood it. He, he could read it in the original Uh, He'd studied uh, Sanskrit, he'd studied Pali with one of the greatest American Sanskrit scholars, a man called Charles Landman, who taught him at Harvard and and who um, presented him with his book. He'd also studied Japanese Buddhism with a man called Masaharu Anasaki, who was a a visiting professor uh, of Japanese uh, at uh, Harvard. Um, So he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't, if you like, a kind of slightly dippy, um, let's tri-Buddhism person. Uh, He had immersed himself in um, both Indian and Japanese ideas of religion and particularly Buddhism. I think he, he at one point quite seriously considered becoming a Buddhist. Even Spender recorded uh, a moment when Eliot was uh, much later in life uh, was talking to, uh, uh, I think, a Chilean poet, Gabriela Mistral, who had won the Nobel Prize. And he said to her then that round about the time he wrote The Wasteland, he was thinking of becoming a Buddhist. But eventually he just decided it was too culturally alien to him, to his own upbringing. Uh, and he commits himself um, to Anglicanism. Yeah, I was fascinated by that, Robert. And I'm wondering, was that a tactical move? I must say Ash Wednesday is not one of my favourite T.S. Eliot poems. It's I, I understand what he's doing with it. I appreciate it. But it doesn't move me the same way as some of his others. I, I am struck by a sense of difficult, rather tortured engagement that's in there. One of the most moving things I've read about Ash Wednesday is an account of someone um, reading it with a group of drug addicts and the way that they respond to the sense of struggle that's in there, the sense of somehow trying to turn, to turn around and to make some sense of a life that seems torn to bits. Oh, it's Uh, very redemptive, isn't it? it, um... Ultimately, yes. But as often with Eliot, there's a tremendous sense of struggle in there. It's a poem of giving up. It's a poem of risking giving up, of renunciation, and not being sure just what will come out of that, and yet struggling, trying to construct something positive out of a lot of quite damaging uh, experiences. He, He does that repeatedly. He faces up to... To, to, to his wounds, really, um, to some of the, 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 the greatest difficulties in his, in his psyche, in his experience, um, in, in, in his magnificent poetry of middle age, poems like Little Gidding, uh, written when he's been a fire watcher in London during the London Blitz. Uh, again, you have this sense of, of trying to make sense of destruction and loss. It's not easy poetry, but it's not meant to be easy. It's not emotionally easy, uh, let alone intellectually easy, but it's very, very impressive. It's so real and we all can find solace in some way with that struggle that he describes. But reading your biography, Robert, the one thing that you put so 
powerfully all his wounds he turned into beautiful pieces of poetry didn't he? Well he's got a wonderful ear for poetry I think, I think he's got a better ear than almost any other poet who's handled the English language uh, the irony is that even his ears were to him wounds he was he's very embarrassed about his own ears when he was a child he'd rather big sticky out ears and when he's a little boy he tries to tie a cord round his head to stop his ears sticking out and he gets teased by girls for having big ears, big eared Tom one of them calls him uh, and yet his ear for language is just magnificent there's, there's, there's a, a, a sense of internal rhyme of the echoic within his lines, not just end rhyme but within the lines that's so haunting uh, almost like Hopkins, uh, fatal to imitate, uh, but as soon as you hear it, you think, ah yes, that's T.S. Eliot. He's got a wonderful year. He's just got this tremendous sense of the, the pliancy of language, or as he calls it, the music of poetry. Uh, you know, I come from Glasgow originally in the west of Scotland, and, and one of the striking things Eliot does during World War Two is, shortly after uh, um, Clyde Bank near Glasgow has been blit, comes and he gives this lecture on the music of poetry. And you might think, my goodness, you know, what a, what a daft thing to do in the middle of World War Two. But for Eliot, the music of poetry is absolutely fundamental to civilization. And you can hear that when you read his poetry aloud. And there's silence between the notes, though, isn't there? Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, sometimes the lines are eroded away, almost bitten away to nothing. Uh, you get, you, I mean, one of the most famous uh, lines that's repeated in the wasteland is just the monosyllable da. It's a weird, weird soundscape. It's a syllable that's supposed to represent thunder, taking it from one of these Sanskrit texts that he's been reading. Uh, but the, the acoustic in that poem is, is just very, very strange. Burning, 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 O oh Lord, thou pluckest me out. O oh Lord, thou pluckest, burning. Uh, and so he'll take a line and he'll just erode it away until there's only one word there. But that word burns in the ear, burns on the page. And it runs right through your body, doesn't it? Yes. It's a very sensuous poetry in many ways, acoustically sensuous, and yet produced by someone who many people regarded as rather a cold ascetic person. He, he certainly could be that in order simply to keep going uh, through his own struggles and, and, and through uh, his wife's illness. His wife had a whole succession of illnesses uh, and to cope. He says at one point that he has had to turn himself into a machine. I think a lot of people um, probably misread him as rather a cold fish, but underneath, deep inside him and deep inside the life of his poetry, there is a burning. Robert, he got married again when he was in his early 60s to a secretary from Faber and Faber. And I think she was nearly, four, there was something like 38 or 40 years in the age difference. Was that a love match? Or? I think it was. In some ways, Eliot's life is, is magnificent in terms of achievement, but also deeply sad. He's really happy when he's a little boy and when he's an old man. But the years in between are years of, of emotional struggle, damage, um, uh, and, and, and plucking out of that this great poetry. When he is uh, a relatively old man, yep, he marries uh, Valerie uh, Fletcher, who has been his secretary, who has heard him, uh, heard a recording of him uh, reading a poem, The Journey of the Magi, when she's uh, uh, at school, and she's just wanted to meet this man, and then she'd wanted to work for this man, and she's kind of, you know, preoccupied, I was going to say obsessed, but it's almost as if she stalked him, and eventually they marry. This is a huge risk for both of them. Eliot's first marriage had been a huge risk, a risk that had gone disastrously wrong, but he takes another risk as an old man. And this, by the way, I think is one of the things he admires about Yeats, that Yeats in old age is astonishingly risky as a writer, also perhaps as a man. Eliot too takes a risk in his own life and surprisingly, perhaps, it pays off. And he is intensely happy at the end of his life. So happy that he ceases to write poetry. Perhaps his poetry was brought out of him often by uh, a sense of hurt. But, but, but his relationship with Valerie Elliott, although it's an unusual relationship, is, I think, a mutually sustaining relationship. And certainly 
uh, in the decades after he died in 1965, she remained astonishingly loyal to his memory, sometimes in ways that people found difficult. She uh, collected his letters, but for a long time uh, allowed, um, did, didn't allow those collected letters to be published until she felt that she was ready. Uh, she edited them. She made them available. She edited the manuscripts of the Wasteland when they had thought to, had been thought to be lost, but then resurfaced in New York Public Library. So, so, so she um, remains movingly loyal to his memory. And I think that's just because they were very deeply in love. Robert, I'm going to throw a spanner in the works. Yep. You end your biography on T.S. Eliot on The Wasteland. Now, I know you're going to continue his story into another biography. But if I was to put you on the spot and say his greatest poem, I don't think it's The Wasteland. I think it's The Four Quartets. Yeah, my, I, I have to say my favourite poem of Eliot's, it may not be his greatest poem, but I do think it's probably his most beautiful, is a poem called Marina which is a a, a strange poem. If I just read you the first five lines of it, you will hear that haunting music. It's a poem that that can, I I think, comes from a period in his life when he's facing up to the fact that he's not going to have children, whatever else is going on. Um, People often think this is a directly autobiographical poem by a poet speaking to his daughter, but Eliot had no daughter. What seas, what shores, what grey rocks and what islands, what water lapping the bow and scent of pine and the wood thrush singing through the fog, what images return, O oh my daughter. God, that's lovely, Robert. Like many of Eliot's poems, that's based on an earlier uh, work of literature. It's partly based on a Shakespeare play. And yet there's an intense sense of longing in it for a daughter who may or may not be there. It, 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 it's just, just as the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, it's a very brave poem about gender. So I think Marina is a very brave poem for this childless, middle-aged man to write. And it is suffused with longing for a daughter. It comes from the same poet uh, as went on to um, write Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, this rather wonderful children's book on which the musical Cats uh, depends for its text. Eliot would have loved that. Um, he liked reading these uh, poems from Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats to his godchildren. Uh, and he was, from his childhood, a great fan of vaudeville shows and music hall. Uh, so sometimes people think, oh, cats, how vulgar. But Eliot always had a great sense of popular culture. You know, the Wasteland doesn't just have bits of Dante in it. It's also got nursery rhymes. London bridges falling down, falling down, falling down. That tells you as much about the sense of disconnection in the Wasteland as any other line. Now, Robert, you end the book beautifully You say T.S. Eliot was a human being rather than a remote historical monument. And you say that while we all have our own understandings of Eliot, our own feel for Eliot, you said that there will never be a definitive biography of Eliot and that each age will crave its own portrait. I think that's true. You know, for for me, he is a a great poet in the way that, um, you know, let's say Chaucer or Shakespeare are great poets. It so happens that we know a lot more about Eliot's biography than we do about Shakespeare's. But nonetheless, think of the number of biographies of Shakespeare that have been written. I think there will be uh, quite a lot of other biographies of T.S. Eliot written over the decades and the centuries. I just hope that I've done as good a job as can be done uh, for our own age in terms of presenting this rather complicated, wonderful poet.
And that was Robert Crawford, Young Elliot from St. Louis to the Wasteland. It's published by Jonathan Cape and retails at about 30 euros. OK, let's break to some music. And when we get back, we'll be meeting with Britain's most successful biographer, the prolific Peter Ackroyd. Welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Now let's keep with the theme of biography and literary imagination and meet with one of Britain's most successful biographers, the formidable Peter Ackroyd. OK, here's a question for you. Are we affected by your location and its history? Well, my next guest believes so, and he's built quite a career writing about it. Peter Ackroyd is possibly one of the most prolific chroniclers of London, and it's artistic, sometimes difficult, but always interesting inhabitants. Peter says, I truly believe that there are certain people to whom or through whom the territory, the place, the past speaks. His biographies of Cockney visionaries such as William Turner, John Milton, William Blake, Charlie Chaplin and Charles Dickens detail what he has coined the territorial imperative, how a place or location shapes our inner vision, our instincts and creative energies. He's been described as a method writer, an anchorite with an industrious work ethic and a man who likes a solid drink or two. Well, last week I had the pleasure of talking to the dauntingly sharp Peter Ackroyd for a couple of minutes. I asked him about some of the big personas he has lived and worked with and the fact that there is possibly something unknowable about everyone. Of course, I don't think any biographer would ever claim that they have found out the inner truths of any particular person that is very elusive and uh, likely to remain so while human beings remain human beings. I'm wondering, though, though, as a biographer, how do you go beyond the persona? Because you've researched some unbelievable personalities. Look at Dickens, Hitchcock. You've looked at William Turner, the artist, Shakespeare. You name it, you've covered it. These extraordinary characters with these massive egos, massive geniuses, but these big public personas. Yes, well, that's part of the reason for writing about them. They have a connection between them all, which is London. But uh, I chose them precisely because they were, for me, representative of a certain culture, a certain place, a certain epoch. And uh, the, the challenge for me was to bring them to life in the most plausible and uh, circumstantial way. And when you bring them to life, what is that like and how close do you get? Because well, presumably you get, it's you're stripping back to the real person. You get as close as anyone possibly can under the circumstances. I've also had made a profession of writing fiction over the last uh, few years at the same time as writing biography. So for me, they are, in a sense, the same pursuit. You gather the information to such as it is, and then you try to make sense of it. Now, you've described some of the big personalities as Cockney visionaries. So, for example, Dickens and Chaplin. Can you explain yes. to me what you mean by that? Well, it's to do with London and with the culture of London over the centuries. And it's always seemed, to me at least, that uh, London, the city, has produced a number of uh, artists and, and writers who have a symbolic vision of the world, who have a spiritual as well as a material vision of the world. That may seem odd as a byproduct of London, but in the cases you mentioned, there are others such as Turner and T.S. Eliot and so forth. The uh, circumstances of London have uh, produced great spiritual visions and gifts. And part of those visions and gifts was bringing things back to poverty and childhood and very difficult childhoods. Because if you look at both Dickens and Charlie Chaplin, they didn't have it easy when they were growing up. But that equips them to have such a creative and imaginative vision of the world, didn't it? 
Yes, I think that's possibly true. It's certainly true of uh, both of the people you mentioned, Dickens and Chaplin. It's less true of artists like Hitchcock and Turner, but they too were thoroughly imbued with a London vision of the world of darkness and power and money hanging over them. So they share the same sensibility as Dickens and Chaplin. Do you think all cities have that, though? Because you spent a lifetime looking at the relationship between a city and a personality and what that location does and brings out in a a person. But I'm wondering if we brought it to Rio Janeiro or we brought it to Rome or we brought it to Paris. There presumably are universals in all of that. Or have I got it all wrong? Well, there probably are universals, but there are also specific ties and traditions. So, for example, I'm sure it's the case that Paris has produced unique and identifiable artists, and, and no doubt Rio de Janeiro, Berlin, and even and Reykjavik. It just so happens that I've concentrated upon London because that's my own city and forms the landscape of my imagination. What has been the impact, I'm wondering, of, for example, if you look at some of the very thinking men that you've chosen, if I look at Thomas More, if I look at Milton and or certainly Blake, and yes. what they brought creatively and spiritually into life. What has been their you know, decisions that they've made, their choices, when you spend so much time with these figures? How has it changed the direction or the choices that you've made? Like I'm wondering in the 80s when you were looking at a certain set of Londoners and now bringing it up to your, some of your more recent biographies, have you seen a change in your own patterning in some way? I don't think there's been a change in my underlying perception of the London visionaries. It's uh, perhaps broadened a little bit and been refined a little bit as time has gone on. But my basic sense of their sensibilities has remained unchanged ever since I think I wrote a life of T.S. Eliot many years ago, although he was not by birth a Londoner. He became an honorary Londoner in the course of his life. And from that time forward, I think I've pursued a pretty consistent thread of interest. Now, two of the men that you have chosen to write about particularly interest me. One is Hitchcock and the other is Ezra Pound. Both men of intense contradictions in terms of what they brought into their lives and their relationships. So they're very contradictory characters, very hard to pin down, very ambiguous in ways. What was that like getting close to those two particular characters? No different from getting close, if that's the word, the phrase you want to use, and to any, any other figure. I don't try to identify with them, but I try to understand them. When people say to me, did you like or dislike A or B, the answer is that that question never arises. I just have to understand them, and by understanding them, convey that understanding to the reader. That's really my only mission. But in that understanding, do you bring a some degree of judgment? No, I try not to judge the people I describe or discuss because that's not my role and also I don't have any right to do so. But if you're not judging, uh, but you're bringing a degree of understanding, how do you separate that? Because to understand, we judge in some ways. I suppose so, but in the cases I've mentioned to you, it hasn't been necessary to make that leap from understanding to judgment. It's not become an issue uh, with me in the uh, formulation of the biography or in the expression of the biography. It's just not become a problem in that sense. Can I put something to you that I read you once said that I found very interesting? It sounds quite spiritual in ways. You said before that you truly believe there are certain people to whom or through whom the territory, the place, the past speaks. Yes, that's uh, something which I've always considered uh, plausible. What what could be called the territorial imperative, where a person can be so affected by a street, a house, an area, that they become identified with it and also become part of it. So it, they reflect the genius of the place. So then do another passerby who walks those same streets absorb that in some way? Is that what you're uh, saying? Yes, I think it often happens that way, that a certain area has a sort of territorial pull upon individuals, whether it was Blake in, in the Soho or whether it was Turner by the river or whether it was Dickens by the blacking factory. A certain area, certain spots, certain locations seem to determine the lives of the people who inhabit them. 
That would suggest, though, Peter, that certain places have a dark energy and others would have a lighter energy. So yes, I'm sure that's true. Does that trouble you in any way? No, not particularly. So it, it's more, you just find it more fascinating. It doesn't in, intimidate you in any way. No, no, not at all. And you walk yeah. the streets of London, understand? Well, I used to do a lot, but I don't do so much anymore. But I find them endlessly fascinating. And of course, it's the one city which I would never tire of. And the one city I would always, in which I would always remain. So it's a constant companion in your life, basically, is what you're saying. Oh, yes. It's a constant and familiar companion, which I hope never to forsake. Has the companion ever let you down or disappointed you in any way? No, not at all. It's always endlessly fascinating. And uh, you, I, you discover new aspects of it every time you walk through it. So it's always been the constant source of inspiration and of comfort. I'm interested to know, you've, you've written several books on the history of London, on the Thames itself, on London's underbelly, so to speak, the London Underground. And when you published London, a biography in 2002, the day that you submitted the proof into the um, publisher, you collapsed. Can you tell me about uh, that? I found that extraordinary. Well, I just had a heart attack. That was all that happened. It was just I managed to stave it off till I'd completed the book. It was sort of a mind over matter, I suppose. So do you think curiosity and that passion that we have in our work keeps us going? And then once we stop, we drop, basically. That can happen uh, uh, all too often. Um, I certainly hope to continue writing until I drop. And I see no reason why I shouldn't do so. So you're just going to keep on writing, writing, writing? As long as I can find themes to write about, yes, I would. But you're juggling a lot there, aren't you? I know that you have maybe three books at a time at a go. So is that not a tremendous amount of activity and work? And how do you build that drive into every day? Uh, No, it's perfectly easy once you've got used to the method and the uh, routine of the matter. I've been doing that now for some 30 40 years, so it doesn't come as an ordeal or a problem to me. What about for time out then? What about to bring space into your life, the space for the creative? Does that interest you to have space for other things or does that matter? It doesn't matter so much to me because I'm so involved in what I do and so preoccupied with what I do that space for something else would probably be an irritation rather than a, a help. Relaxation is something which one does in fits and starts, as it were, it, it just happens accidentally. I don't plan to take time off in any particular way. So it sounds like there you're describing obsession, but it's a positive obsession. Yes, I suppose it, it could be described as a positive obsession. It's certainly one which I've had now since uh, I was uh, 23, 24, and it hasn't uh, weakened or diminished in the slightest. So is that what genius takes? I don't know anything about genius. I just know that I enjoy my work. And that was novelist, cultural historian and biographer Peter Ackroyd. Peter's latest book, Alfred Hitchcock, is published by Chateau and Windus and retails at about €12. Now, for those of you who are looking for something a bit different, I recommend London, a biography, Thames, Sacred River and London Under, the secret history beneath the streets. All very curious reads 
and I suppose best described as historical sociology. Well, if you can get away with that. Okay, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. The music today comes from Max Ritter and Goldmund. I hope you like them. Now, before I head, I've a handy little competition for you. The good people from Books Ireland are giving away one annual subscription to Books Ireland. So all you have to do is answer this fairly straightforward question. In 1923, when W.B. Yeats heard he was to receive the Nobel Prize for Literature, he celebrated with a slightly unusual combo. So what did he have on his celebratory dinner? All you have to do is email your answer to TalkingBooks and Newstalk.com and the first winning answer gets an annual subscription to Books Ireland. Off you go now, best of luck. Well, all that's left for me to do is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's show, and to Paul Murnock on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's programme with some soulful words from T.S. Eliot's masterpiece, The Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. How true. Good night. for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.